2 Timothy 2, and we're looking at verses 14 to 16. And the title is The Worker. 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 16, The Worker. Um, Phil Jackson, you might have heard of him, the longtime coach of Michael Jordan, he said, it's hard work that made him a legend. See, Michael Jordan's jump shot, it wasn't good. Like his jump shot, you don't think Michael Jordan was horrible. Like, but his jump shot at one time, it was not good. So on his off season, he would take hundreds of jump shots a day to get better. And obviously the hard work paid off. Philly's pitcher, Roy Halladay's workouts are so intense that none of his teammates can even make it halfway through the workouts. They're done after halfway through. EE CEO Jeffrey Immelet has been called the bionic manager. He worked 100 hours a week for 24 years. Great. Venus and Serena Williams were up hitting tennis balls from 6 a.m. from the time they were 7 and 8 years old. They've dominated women's tennis for many years because they basically were raised on the tennis court. They worked hard. And maybe you've had a family member that you grew up around or someone you know now that just had, they're just a hard worker. Like they give their all in whatever they do. And in Genesis 2.15, you remember God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and to keep it. So sin isn't the reason people had to start working. You know, if people don't like their job, they're like, oh, Adam, you sinner. Like, they blame him. But no, God gave Adam stewardship to take care of the garden and work with his hands even before sin entered the picture. Working is God-given. Proverbs 12, 11, it says, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. I think sometimes Christianity can be so heavily based on grace, which, yes, it's based on grace. And this is a grace place, right? This is a place for grace. But I think Christianity can sometimes be an excuse to do nothing. Because you know what? God has grace. He'll forgive us. So why even try? Like I used to do a group hiring when I worked as a manager at American Eagle in, in Hollywood, California. And, and let me tell you, there are some young people who do not want to work, like, and they will give the minimum. Like I, for this, I'll never forget this one guy I grew group hiring, you know. Um, we were all sitting in, a, I have him sit in a circle, you know, and I have these questions, that, and I ask him, and, I, and he was just like, I wasn't going to do this, but whatever. Um, he, was, he was like in his chair, right, and, uh, and we were just, we were all around in the circle, everyone sitting straight up, proper, and this guy's just like this. I was like, you all right? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. And I was like, why do you want to work here? He's like, I need money. I did not hire him. Like, I'm just saying, I did not hire I was like, are you kidding? I, really, I thought he was, I was waiting for him to say, just kidding. Like, let me sit back. Like, he was just didn't care, right? Um, I had to let a lot of those young people go that I was working with because they just had no work ethic, no, no initiative, right? And honestly, it shocked me sometimes. So I was hired at this job to get productivity up because the store was like last. It was doing horrible in, in, in the region. And um, so I gave the employees a chance to shave. I wasn't just like, hey, you're all fired. Like I didn't get there the first day and say that. No, I said, hey, we have to get our numbers up, all this stuff, right? And I, I gave them a chance. Like you have a chance to actually start working. Because a lot of them would just slouch like that, stand around, just do nothing. Customers were there. They could care less about the customers. They're just doing their own thing. And, but a lot of them I had to let go. I had to cut their hours because they had apathy and laziness. They didn't want to work. 
I'd have to cut a lot of their hours and they would go, how am I supposed to live off that? I'm like, I don't know, but you're not working here. <laughs> so maybe another job will pay you for doing nothing. But, and so Proverbs 13.4 says this, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made full. And I love that. So here's a pretty eye-opening and biblical fact. Like working hard is a kingdom quality. Jesus woke early to pray, you know, and stayed up late ministering. The disciples were, were, got irritated. Remember that one time? They were like, Jesus, send them, these people away. These people are just, they were like annoyed, basically. They're like, send them into the towns to get some food. They're asking for food. They're so needy. Send them away. And Jesus was like, no, no, no. Let them come to me. We'll take care of it. Jesus worked hard. <laughs> and if you do a study of men and women of God, the prophets and all, and those who love the Lord, you'll find that they didn't have this casual, you know, job of spreading the truth. Ah, I guess I'll, I guess I'll spread the truth a little bit today, like an hour, you know. You'll see that they didn't give the minimum. They, they went through very hard times. They worked hard for the Lord with all that was within them. Working hard is a kingdom quality. And remember, Paul is going to is going over like seven examples, basically, of what ministry is like. And he's writing to young Pastor Timothy in his 30s, and he's pouring wisdom into him, trying to help him. And so far, we've gone over the first four, which were the steward, we've gone over the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And so this week, today, we're going to look at the workman, the workman. We went over the fact that we have stewardship with the Word of God. All of us do. We learn it, and it's our responsibility to share it. Second, we looked at the soldier because we're trained up in the faith. Third, we looked at the athlete because we need to prepare for our race of faith. And like a farmer, we need to plant, water, and wait and have patience in the waiting. So there's so much here. I love it. So today we're going to look at the workmen. So again, let's pray and then we'll read the verses. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you, Lord, even in the Psalms it says you're, you hold your word higher than your name. It's so important. We don't worship your word, but we worship you who wrote it, who's given it to us, Lord. It's God-breathed, living, active, profitable in so many ways, especially it's a source of our spiritual growth. And we pray, Lord, that you'd uh, speak to us this morning, convict and comfort, help and heal, Lord. And we just pray that you'd have your way in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Verse 14 to 16, 2 Timothy 2 says, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. So the workmen. So the point of these verses that Paul is relaying to Timothy is to keep your attention on the most important things. Verse 14, Paul writes to Pastor Timothy to keep focused. Don't, don't be distracted by unprofitable things. Paul reminds Timothy of essential points of the gospel, and then he tells Timothy to remind the people of these things as well. So Timothy's calling, like his job, was to keep his hearers focused on himself. No, focused on the word of God. If a church is not focused and modeled after the word of God, then it's not really following God's design, right? And here's what the church is not. The church is not an entertainment center. Like, uh, the church is not a social club. The church is not a think-positive center. 
Okay, that when we forget that the purpose of the church, when we forget what it is, like we start to focus on all the wrong things and it happens so often. A church starts out keeping the main thing the main thing, but then they kind of veer off and do their own thing, right? And which is not God's design for the biblical church. Paul's telling Timothy to not get distracted by unprofitable things in the context of the church. Distraction can lead to disaster, basically. Distraction. The smartphone, it's useful in many ways. It's very useful in many ways and has a few, uh, makes a few things easier, right? But it also can be a tool of distraction. I don't know if you, you realize that. I think most of us can talk to most of you. It's like, yeah, I'm, I, you know, uh, my wife recently took off Facebook and Instagram from her phone. So if you try to message her through there and she doesn't answer right away, it's because it's not on her phone anymore because these things distract us. The, uh, the other day I was meeting with a, a manager at my work and he, he kept looking at his smartwatch, right, like during the meeting. And he was sitting right next to me, right, and we were talking and he, was, he kept looking at it. And I got to the point where I was like, you know what, I'm going to text him. And I was like, hey, dude, stop looking at your watch. <laughs> you know? and, he, and, he, and he, I could tell he like, looked at it, and he, like, he, he didn't look, he kind of looked over and he smiled, and he's like, but he stopped. <laughs> but I knew, man, I'm like, dude, you're not even paying attention. He smirked, he was distracted. Um, one, you know, and even like, on a more serious note, like one out of every four car accidents now in the U.S. are caused by, guess what? Texting, yeah, texting while driving. 390,000 injuries occur each year because of texting while driving. And so Paul's writing to Timothy to not get distracted from the main point of the church. Paul writes, not to strive about words to no profit. So here we see it's about focusing on the gospel and not focusing on attempting to become a debating society. right? Now, if you like debating, that's great. I remember I took debate, uh, a debating class in college, and I actually liked it. Like, I... I I debated this one thing that everyone else disagreed with, and I was, it was having fun. I was like, sweet, I'm proving my point. You know, it's, so there's a place for that, but that's not the church. Can you ask questions? Sure. Do you want to go deeper and have genuine like, inquiries about the Word of God? Awesome. Ask him. Let's go through it. But when it just comes to, I just want to debate, that's not, that's not the church. So often Christians are swept away from the gospel because they're distracted over discussion and, they, and, and strife over stuff that does not have central importance. There is a reason diamonds are displayed, you know, diamonds are displayed on, on uh, black velvet, so they stand out, so you can see the beauty in them. So you'd be like, wow, that thing, those things are shining, right? Um, I, I remember when I went to go get my wife's uh, diamond for her ring, right? And, um, you know, $30,000 later, no, I'm kidding, I'm totally kidding. We were totally broke. But, um, but this guy had... Uh, this guy had diamonds from Canada. I don't know. He was a friend. He, he did the sound at our last church. And he, we like met at a Starbucks, you know, and it was nighttime. And, and he, he got, it was almost like a, it wasn't illegal. It was just, it seems like an illegal deal. But he was like, hey, I got the night. We got coffee. And he like brought him out. Of, but it was behind this black thing. And it was, they were all so shiny and amazing, you know. And I was like, wow. But it was on this black background. And here's the thing, though. The, the gospel is the good news right, that is displayed on the background of this dark world. This world is dark, and so the gospel should shine out even more, and it should stand out because it actually saves souls. And how valuable is that? The gospel is the central importance. Debate can lead to a tainted witness and an angry believer. Bitter about church, bitter about everything. All they do, it's like reading a book and be like, 
this one sentence in this 800-page book is wrong. Forget it, right? And it's like they're focusing on all the wrong things. Here's the point, though. We must discard speculation that does not lead to edification. So what is the result of focusing on useless things? Paul says, well, the ruin of the hearers. Sounds dramatic, <laughs> but it really is. See, if we take the message of focus off of the Lord and place an emphasis on human opinions or conjecture, the endless debates will lead to the ruin of the hearers. The Bible clearly states that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? Yes, by the word you guys know, by the word of God. This is where faith comes from. So Romans 10, 17 makes it clear that your faith will grow when you hear and read the word of God, right? Or even listen to it. This morning, I think my wife listened to all of Exodus while she was getting ready and taking a shower and everything. I was hearing Exodus being read in the background. Like, that's awesome. But here's the thing. I've never heard an opinion that has strengthened my faith. Have you? Like, sure, other opinions, here's what they do. They can make you think. They help you make decisions, maybe, but opinions aren't the source of spiritual strength. Like, people often attempt to fish for an opinion that agrees with their viewpoint. They'll come up to you and for other people, and they'll be like, okay, here's what I think. What do you think? Oh, you don't agree? Okay, I'm going to go to this other person. And, and they'll wait to find their own opinion, their own viewpoint stated by someone else to validate it. So truth is put on a shelf, and opinions rule oftentimes. Now, don't get me wrong, people have opinions about all kinds of things, and it's okay to yelp a restaurant to find out what people's opinions of the food are. Like, if there's cockroaches in the kitchen, don't go there. But opinions may make you think, but they don't build faith. See, God doesn't have an opinion. He speaks absolute truth. And that's a beautiful thing. Verse 15, the, in the King James Version, Paul uses the word study in verse 15. This doesn't mean going to school and studying for a test. The word means to be diligent and zealous, right? And it's translated this way a few other places in Paul's writing. So, so the point of this passage is that the workman must be diligent in his labors. Why? So that he will not be ashamed when his work is inspected. It's like it reminds me of the story of the dad of Steve Jobs, who, if you don't know, Steve Jobs was a one, uh, one of the founding members of uh, Apple. Growing up, Jobs... Uh, once helped his dad build a fence, right? His dad was a gifted woodworker, really good. And, and they were building this fence around their family home, you know, and his, his son was helping him and, and Jobs was helping him. But while working, his dad shared a piece of advice with his son. And his dad told him, you know, Steve, like, son, you've got to make the back of the fence that nobody sees just as good looking as the front of the fence. Even though nobody will see it, you will know. And that will show that you are dedicated to making something perfect. This is the mindset Jobs took into designing computers. Even the, It's crazy because I was reading about this and studying this week, and I was like, even the chips, he was like, yeah, that's ugly. We need to make that more sleek, more cool looking. Like, even the chips that no one sees in computers and smartphones are like these beautiful like, masterpieces, even though no one ever sees them. But now the principle is, is biblical as far as giving your all. And I love one of my favorite verses is Colossians 3.23. I'm just going to read you the NIV version, which says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So what work are we speaking of specifically? And here's the key, rightly dividing the word of truth. So the pastor is a workman in God's word. And let's back up a minute, because I want to take a look at what Paul says here before talking about the word. He writes, to present yourself approved to God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed. 
So when you put in hard work for the day, it just, and you, you guys know, when you put in hard work for the day, it just kind of feels good. Or when you study for a test and you take the test and you actually get like a good grade, you're like, feels good. Like I worked hard, I studied hard for that. You accomplished what you needed to. So you're tired, but you're fulfilled. And here's what Paul is saying here. Like when it comes to who we are living to please, it's not people. Right? Timothy needed to not be timid because he was timid. And he was not living to make other people happy. Timothy, who Paul was writing to here, he should be about God's kingdom, not about tiptoeing around people because of their feelings. Now, Timothy wasn't to be an insensitive hardhead either. We're not trying to strive to be approved by people, though. Nor is a Christian pop. This is not a Christian popularity contest, right? Like, the minister of the believer and the believer, they're both called to be faithful to the Lord. Now, does our character matter? And are we to have a good reputation among the congregation? Yes, and yes. But more important than that is that we are to present ourselves approved to God. Right? So there's a contrast here between an approved worker and an ashamed worker. An approved worker studies the word and applies it to their own life. An ashamed worker wastes their time with other religious stuff and has little to give to the congregation. An approved worker does not waste their time arguing about non-essentials because he knows that will only undermine God's word. An approved worker will shun godless chatter. It's a waste of time. An approved worker knows that false doctrine is dangerous and will oppose it. So Paul actually compared false doctrine to cancer, which spreads, infects, and kills tissue. This is what false doctrine does. It tears apart the truth and damages the hearers. The cancer, the false doctrine, must be exposed, acknowledged, and removed. Only the sound, meaning healthy, the sound doctrine of the word of God can keep a church healthy and growing. Right? Paul writes to Timothy of the work he's speaking of, which was and is rightly dividing the word of truth. And again, this was to be the focus of Timothy's, like his hard work. As a minister, Timothy was to know what God's word said, how it was to be understood, and how it was to not be understood. It definitely was not enough to know a few uplifting Bible stories and a verse here and a verse there. Like, you can know all the Bible stories. A lot of people, you know, know all the, every single one, right? But until we see the Bible as a conduit of truth that touches our lives personally, it's just a book of information. The stories are the surface, but the deep truths of God come to the surface when we dig and divide. Dig for the truth treasures and divide the word of God, meaning observe it, interpret it, and then apply it to our lives, right? We're to, if you will, we're to personalize the word of God in context. It's like Paul was exhorting Timothy to rightly divide the word of God, keep it in context, and just teach it. Nothing flashy, nothing entertaining, no strobe lights, secular movie nights or whatever, extra, you know, spiritual. No, just teach the Bible because you know what? The word of God speaks for itself. It's just about Digging deeper, and the treasure is revealed over and over again. You guys know this. As you're going through the words, something will jump out of you and hit you like a, just like a firecracker. I don't know. <laughs> and like a, you know, it just be like, wow, that, that's it. Exactly what I needed. The word of God was not committed to ministers and pastors to amuse people and give self-help messages. People will say, well, God help will help those who help themselves. Well, that's not in the Bible, and that's not even biblical. This isn't a self-help book. It is an instruction manual for a living. It is a blueprint for life. 
a roadmap in our calling from God. So, rightly dividing. So with the phrase, rightly dividing, we have a few ancient terms or pictures, kind of like that go along with these two words. Rightly dividing means rightly handling the word of God like one would rightly handle a sword. So if you handle a sword incorrectly, there's not many people that handle swords. I know a few of you in here that actually have swords. But if you handle a sword incorrectly, you're not going to be able to defend yourself in battle. Right? Not that you're going to have a sword and fight with someone, but the illustration is that you must hold the sword correctly to defend yourself and to fight this fight of faith. And if you handle the sword incorrectly, it could hurt you. And the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. If you hold it incorrectly, you can get cut. It can bleed, and it'll be painful. Also, rightly dividing means plow straight with the Word of God, properly presenting the essential doctrines. To plow straight, the farmer would find a landmark in the distance, like mountains or hills, and they would look at that landmark in order to plow a straight line. By aiming at the landmark, the plow path would be straight. When it comes to God's word, which is likened to a landmark in that definition, the truth will make sense and it will line up. Rightly dividing also means properly directing and arranging the word of God, just like a priest would dissect and arrange an animal for sacrifice. Leviticus 1, 10 through 13, it says, If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it in the north side of the altar before the Lord and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar, and it shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire of the altar, but he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. And then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So there, there was a process that was orderly that the priest would do when it came to animal sacrifices. It wasn't just random or based on opinion. It was biblical. There was an order of things. Like there is a way to rightly divide the word of God and there is a wrong way. One of the worst methods of teaching that I, I've ever seen is the springboard method, springboard preaching. This means taking a verse, you know, taking just whatever, taking a random verse, reading it, and just using this verse to explain what you already had in mind before you even got into the word. So you start with your agenda, and you say, this verse goes with what I think. And they just preach on this one verse totally out of context. There is a process and an order to rightly dividing the word of truth. We observe, we interpret, we apply. It's called inductive Bible study. Rightly dividing means a lot to each their portion as someone distributing food at a table. The word of God is often likened to food because this really is our spiritual nutrients. So with rightly dividing, there's also such thing as wrongly dividing. In other words, not everyone cuts it straight. Teaching the Bible is not giving someone's private interpretation of what they think the Bible says. When you hear someone say, the Bible says this, but I think it means this. Beware of that. What is said next? Yeah, the Bible says this, but here's this. I don't really. Let's, let's talk about it. You know, because something from the Bible may be about to be taken out of context. There's actually a right way and a wrong way to understand the Bible. A pastor definitely needs to work hard at mastering the right interpretation. And I want to give you guys just a couple examples of what people will try to argue about when it comes to understanding the Bible. Many people love to say when the Bible is quoted, well, that's just your interpretation. See, their faulty idea is, well, you interpret the Bible your way, 
I interpret it in my way, and another person interprets it their way. We can never really know what it means, so don't judge me you know, with your Bible verses. When someone tells me, that's just your interpretation, I'll say in response, well, it's true, it is my interpretation, but it isn't just my interpretation. It is a correct interpretation, and we need to pay attention to what the Bible says correctly interpreted in context. Because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. But this is an important point. There may be people who try to twist the Scripture to their own ends, but they're wrongly dividing the word of truth. We can't just pick the interpretation that seems most comfortable or compatible to us and claim it is true. It must be rightly divided, right? And it must be consistent with what the Bible says in the specific passage and with the entire message of the Scripture. For example, a correct interpretation of Matthew 7.1, judge not that ye be not judged, is not the idea that you have no right to judge my behavior or anyone else's behavior. That is a wrong interpretation, you know? If this were the case, then Jesus repeatedly broke his own commandment because he often told people their behavior was wrong in the sight of God. The correct understanding of Matthew 7.1 is easily seen by reading Matthew 7.2. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus was saying, don't judge anyone by a standard you are not willing to be judged by. God will hold you to the same standard you hold others to. This clearly does not forbid judging someone else's life, but it does prohibit doing it unfairly or hypocritically or living with a judgmental attitude. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The point is clear. There's a right way and a wrong way to divide Scripture, to divide Matthew 7-1. Every Christian, but pastors especially, must work hard to rightly divide the word of truth. We should still work hard at studying the Word of God because we take it literally, not figuratively. Or we take it objectively, not subjectively. These are the nutrients that lead to spiritual growth. So let's be workers, rightly dividing the Word of truth and dig into the treasure. That is God's Word. There is nothing like it. There's nothing like it. It is better than silver or gold or you know, beautiful diamonds on the backdrop. You know, It is the Word of God. It's a treasure. And we're so blessed to freely... Read it and study it and look into it. This is the source of spiritual growth. 